Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Chris and Eric's Longbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week is the conclusion of Marvel's Merry Mutants Month. So week four of our nonstop X-Men coverage. Uh, this was one of your picks, so want to go ahead and introduce it? Alright, uh, this is X-Men 1 through 4. Uh, this is not that X-Men 1 through 4 or that X-Men 1 through 4. It's the Hickman X-Men 1 through 4. So, um, if you're looking for this, the very first issue has a cover with, like, Cyclops in the middle, and, um, you know, his kids, and his wife, and his boyfriend, and his brothers, and his father, um, on the moon. The, uh, X-Men logo is the, the new cool one done by Tom Muller, with the sort of weird computery design, but again, this is, this is the first of the X-Men ones with that, and not the second. We've been picking nothing but comics that we have to explain how the hell to find them lately but this specifically uh is the x-men run that began in 2019 uh these issues straddle the very end of 2019 going into the beginning of 2020 uh we're going to be doing issues number one through four as you said jonathan hickman is the writer on these we have lionel francis Yu on pencils as well as doing some of his own inks on issues three and four. And we also have Jerry Alangrelon on inks for issues one and four, and Sonny Go on colors, and VC's Clayton Cowles is the letterer. And, um, well, these... Oh, issue number one, the legacy number, according to Marvel, is 645. I... Is... That's counting Uncanny X-Men. That's not counting X-Men. That's weird. It's all very fucking weird. The legacy numbers are made up, but it will, if it helps, legacy number 645. Yeah, mainly I think the easiest visual way to tell is just, it's a bunch of dudes on the moon. Uh, so, issue one opens with a flashback to Scott, uh, getting given his, uh, Scott Summer Cyclops, uh, not laser beams from his eyes. He gets given his ruby quartz glasses that mean that he isn't just constantly blasting everything he looks at with, like, optic force all the time. By Charles Xavier, uh, he's delighted that he can see, and Xavier's like, oh yes, I'm, I'm gonna show you stuff. At which point, we cut hard cut to the present day. Um, so, the X-Men and all of the mutants have formed their own nation uh, called Krakoa. Uh, this is a initially was a secret venture that was created by um magneto charles and moira mctaggart who is now retconned to be a mutant who has lived 10 lives uh basically creating an alternate timeline every time she dies and is like reborn back in the womb but with all the knowledge of her previous lives as a way to ensure eventual mutant um supremacy and success as a species after the 12 issues of Hawks Pox, which we'll definitely wind up covering at some point, probably, but it will be a while. Anyway, the mutants are all able to resurrect, uh, so they've got a team of five mutants that can bring any mutant back from the dead. They have their own island nation, they have um, gateways that are, like, created by flowers, because Krakoa is the living island Krakoa from Giant Size X-Men. So, he's alive, 
and he's now on the side of the X-Men and the mutants and helping them out. Yeah, is that is that everything you need to know for these four, probably, um, going in? Yeah, I would say that's the main sort of thesis of the big cultural changes. Uh, the main character that they're going to follow, I would say, is Cyclops. This X-Men run is largely sort of more of an anthology series than one long narrative because for the most part each issue is hickman and you introducing a new idea to pick up and play with more later but a lot of it is going to be relatively centered around cyclops who holds a position as one of the war captains of krakoa basically just a team leader yeah just one of the badasses among badasses and it's more of sort of a like head general soldier role than an actual governmental senatorial sort of thing because the actual governing body of Krakoa is called the Quiet Council which is a group of 12 mutants and we'll like see some of the council throughout these issues but our main point of view is more Cyclops just sort of going about his everyday dealing with just all of the new weird shit that's going on. Um, yeah, issue three has a fair bit of Quiet Council stuff, but yeah, other than that, we're not going to see much of them. Um, but we, in this issue, we cut to Storm, um, kicking the ass of a bunch of Orcus soldiers and, like, one giant robot. Um, so Orcus, uh, new thing from Hoxpox as well, they're the main sort of anti-mutant group now. It is a military outfit formed from anti-mutant, like, members of S.H.I.E.L.D., and sword and hammer and these people have uh given up on their principles enough that they're teaming up with actual fucking nazis from hydra and um like evil crazy scientists from aim um all of whom are extremely anti-mutant to form a new organization whose goal is to counter krakoa and um what the mutants are doing in their continued attempts to not get genocided Oh, so they are in the last remaining Orcus stronghold on Earth, which makes it sound like they're gonna win, but, like, there's, there is a giant orbital space station that they have orbiting the sun, which is the main Orcus base, so this is just the last one on the planet. And, um, this bit's actually... So Storm is nearly taken out by a robot, but Cyclops is able to save her. This is, as we found out pretty recently, actually set up for... Um, Storm being pregnant, a plotline that was dropped, uh, I think because they didn't want to get in the way of a Ta-Nehisi Coates run. The kid she was going to have would be her kid with Black Panther, who would be raised in the world, which is like a time-moving-fast-place thing. Um, and essentially the idea was the kid was going to be like a cool new character who was like mutant and human and like machine and like super advanced human from living in the world and being essentially from the future. Um, so on the one hand, that character sounds cool, but I'm really fucking glad that Storm wasn't pregnant after all. Was this just like something Hickman dropped in an interview or? Yeah, yeah, it was the Jay and Miles interview that he did um, pretty recently. Again, I think the character concept for Storm's son is cool, but <laughs> you have a big new X-Men relaunch, and the thing you do with Storm is um, she's going to have a child. It's a bit boring. Um, I think what they wound up doing, which is kind of nothing until they make her Queen of Mars and the Solar System. So I, I prefer the way things turned out. 
Yeah, we'll have a lot of good things to say about these issues, hence why you picked them. But one of my main criticisms with just the way that it actually plays out is that, and this is both this issue specifically and just the entire first like two years or so of this run, is that it's this gigantic big X-Men relaunch and Storm doesn't get to do shit. Like she's technically on the Marauders, but she barely even really does anything in that. Like she's not the protagonist by any means. Like it's really Kitty Pride's book and... For as many good things as I like about these comics, it's also a very white relaunch where Storm specifically doesn't get to do anything, and it doesn't help that, like, her first thing here is literally just having to be saved by Cyclops, and that's it, and, like, that plot idea about the child and pregnancy and everything. I don't need her to have a kid either, so I'm not sad that that's dropped, but also I wish she had more of a driving force in the narrative more quickly. If you can hear any of the bouncing sounds in the background, we're watching Chris's very cute cats play in the play in the background, leaping around like hunters he after their his, toys. He picked his noisiest toy for recording. Yeah, he hasn't played with that in a week. Anyway, yeah, um, like there are behind the scenes reasons for like why Storm just kind of wasn't available. I do wish that they'd instead like lifted up a couple other characters of color to fill that void. Um, but instead we, like, Cyclops gets some great shit, Kitty gets some great shit, Wolverine gets some great shit, they're very highlighted characters in the first half of, um, the first couple years of Krakoa X-Men as a whole, and, like, these comics are incredible, but that is probably their main issue, I would say, in hindsight. But moving forward, um, together, Storm and Cyclops take out, like, a bunch of these soldiers, um, at which point... Magneto shows up with his daughter Polaris, his um only remaining daughter Polaris, thanks to more retcons that retconned out the old retcons about Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. And um, these fucking idiots have apparently built their anti-mutant base out of metal, when one of the main mutant heads of state is a man who can move metal with his mind. So they get their asses handed to them, and we cut down um, to inside the base, and a bunch of the scientists decide as a last-minute venture to inject themselves with a serum that will turn them into ape men. So we get the amazing line of Cyclops seeing these guys coming at them, and he's like, on your right, be careful, they're sure to be savvy. All these apes have PhDs. It's a weird 1950s Gorilla Comics moment. Like, Gorilla Grodd... Now, now that I need to list them, I can't think of all the other names, but there is a moment where there are just so many Gorilla supervillains. Ultra-humanite. And- Ultra Humanite, and so we just briefly get a little squadron of those. So I assume that Jonathan Hickman and Lionel Francis Yu, either one of them or both of them, I assume, must just like gorillas. Oh, oh, the gorilla gang. They killed Robin once. I think that might have been a drug-induced dream, though. Batman's weird. There's there's a lot of gorilla supervillains for some reason. I mean, this this is sort of tying into the evolution theme. Like, these guys are explicitly like, oh, we're too evolved to handle these extra-evolved mutants. We need to go back to primitive savagery. The best thing about the gorilla scientists is they show up later. Like, there's just now some gorilla scientists in Orcus who will just show up sometimes. 
And that's delightful. Um, so the mutants managed to make it to their goal, which is a bunch of, like, uh, imprisoned mutants in, like, stasis jaws. So they prepare a gateway back to Krakoa so they can rescue them. Um, and they open all the, like, stasis jaws, but one of them doesn't have a mutant in it. It's a child of the vault. This is set up for a thing that'll happen later. Children of the vault. It's, it's the other, like weird place where times move time moves faster than in other places from x-men comics and the children are just like again sort of weird post-human machine hybrids yeah thematically their main thing is just humankind trying to fight mutants by like artificially evolving themselves so that's sort of a big thing with orcus that's going to be continual throughout this run is just mankind hating the threat of mutants of like natural evolution and therefore doing experiments upon themselves and using whatever tools they can to preserve humanity even if what that means is not actually adhering to humanity as long as it's not mutant kind yeah uh because yeah i mean these guys just fucking suck it's so like the mutants have created um, literally an entirely green society, and the human reaction to it is trying to destroy them. At least for Orcus, it's it's more complicated on the global stage, which we'll be getting into later in this episode. Actually, uh, moving on from that, they save all of the mutant children who had been imprisoned. Um, Leno, you gets to draw some very fun monster designs as a girl with like tentacle legs. There's I'm gonna call them a pair of twins who are like shiny and all one like smooth color all the way across their bodies it's very neat stuff yeah the x-men or the group of mutants i guess maybe not necessarily the x-men but the little squad succeeds in their mission rescues everyone to take them back to krakoa not counting the children of the vault girl because she basically just teleported herself away and back on krakoa we essentially just get a series of conversations among the characters where the way I'm going to describe this might make it sound ham-fisted, but I don't think it is. But they're essentially just speaking the themes at each other, but in a way that works. Where, like, Scott and Storm, and also we'll get conversations with Polaris as well later. They're basically just talking around their feelings about Krakoa and about the hope it seems to represent and to what degrees all the different characters do or don't believe in it which Storm has discussion with Cyclops about just loving, uplifting of her mutants. Uh, Scott and Polaris are going to have a conversation where they both sort of acknowledge the way Magneto is conducting himself is a bit cringeworthy, but also it's what he's always wanted to do, and it's a very sincere sort of thing. Because, like, Magneto arrives back on Krakoa, and all these mutant children look up to him and are, like, chanting his name and just asking him questions, and they're like, we want to grow up and be X-Men like you, and Magneto does the whole, I fight so you don't have to. And Polaris just sees this sort of reinvigorated energy in her father. (laughs) I love Magneto in general and here. And from there, Polaris and Scott sort of transcend into talking about their feelings about the new status quo. And Scott is essentially trying to take a very optimistic, forward-moving outlook about it all. And Polaris sort of has the, do you really believe all of that? With Scott answering every single word of it. And it's a very, I think it's a good balancing act where... 
none of the characters are denying all of the shit that they're having to face and the fact that humanity is going to try and strip away all the progress, but it's also all of the characters just sort of feeling as assured in their confidence and in their power and their potential as they possibly could be. It's a very sort of, in order for this to work, we have to believe it can work, and that's what we're going to do is make it work sort of thing. Yeah, and, um... I mean, specifically, uh, Cyclops talks about his experience with um, his son, Cable, um, which, for complicated reasons, Cable wound up in the future, um, like, sent to the future as a baby and raised in the future, um, and it was mostly a thing Scott didn't really have a choice in having happen, but now he's got uh, a, a teenage version of Cable has come back and is paradoxically now being raised by Scott and Jean in the present. And Scott's, like, talking about that and about, like, how he really does believe in, like, this time maybe Kokoro will work and maybe they'll be able to, um, convince the humans to not try and murder them en masse. So when I initially read these four issues, I had read, like, the classic burn-drawn stuff from the late 70s, early 80s, and I had read... New X-Men by Grant Morrison, which is amazing, and we're eventually just going to cover that in its entirety, probably. And that was kind of it. And so this was the issue that really sold me on Cyclops. Mostly because he's, like, really chilled out. He's, like, weirdly like a chill dad in this. And, like, the, the level of hope for this character especially, who, like, for... I mean, you've read more of the Bendis era stuff, but, like, certainly even before that with Utopia had been so like he's a very pessimistic character but also like continually right about stuff when he said these pessimistic things and to see him being optimistic and he's Krakoa is really like generally very good for the mutants and they are thriving more than they had ever had before this is a very self-assured confident scott which like he's sort of always had that a bit but for a good maybe 20 years honestly because in a lot of ways the new x-men stuff even has a bit of it has been more downtrodden versus this is a very i'm still here cyclops sort of thing where it's very much just like i've been doing this shit since 1963 and i'm still here so it's not me being naive it's me being correct that i am going to survive no matter what yeah i i mean it's just it's really cool. I, I have said in previous episodes that I really love, like, a confident superhero with experience who knows what they're doing. Oh, we then get a scene uh, of some of the Orca scientists following up on some stuff from House of X, Powers of Ten, um, and a mutant attack on, like, their space base. Um, but, like, the space base is still there. The mutants were getting rid of a, a big sentinel-making head thing. Was it a mother mold? Yeah, a mother mold is what they called it. And moving on, we get to the real meat of this issue, I think, which is the stuff on the moon in the Summer's house. So Cyclops has... Krakoa can grow houses for mutants because Krakoa is, uh, in many ways, this amazing post-scarcity society, uh, mostly because the island just provides everyone with all the food and habitation they could possibly need. And since they have the portals that can connect them to the main island, you can kind of grow these anywhere and then just put a portal there, and then you're still on Krakoa. 
and you can still go there and you're like still just as close to everything as you would be if you're anywhere else so scott's put his house on the moon uh if you are unaware in marvel comics there is a place called the blue area of the moon which is habitable it's where the watcher lives and it's also where dark phoenix died and this is where cyclops has decided to put his house for his entire family and they're all well nearly all of them are visiting so in the summer's house right now we have um just just to run through all the characters before we go and we have cyclops jean gray who's his wife vulcan and havoc who are his brothers cable who right now is the teen cable who is scott's son from the future kind of and we have rachel summers who is scott and jean's daughter from an alternate future (laughs) she is from the days of future past um and so this is her uh, having been in the present day for a while now and so we get a series of just like really fun scenes of the mutants like being happy and safe and being together as a family. Um, and then Scott's dad, Corsair, who is a space pirate. If you've seen the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, Chris Pratt is not based off Star-Lord in the comics. He's based off of Cyclops' dad, Corsair, basically. The the roguish leader of a band of space outlaws who run around and largely do good things, but also are, like, constantly stealing shit and getting into trouble. Uh, the Starjammers are great, and they're also here. Um, I cannot remember all of them right now. Hepzibah, Raja, and Chad. There we go. Hepzibah uh, has a very memorable moment, which I will be digging into in a minute. But So it's uh, Scott and his dad talking about like Scott putting the uh, house on the moon, and Scott's just like, well, I did it for the view, and we get this like very pretty shot of like Earth from the point of view of the moon. Um, where is that on Earth? Is that... Why can I not match this coastlines up with anything in my head? It's... I think it's meant to be the ocean between the Americas and then Europe and Africa. Because, like, the center of it is mostly all water. Yeah, I think the angle's just odd and, and they've drawn it. Anyway, yeah. It's definitely... They're definitely on the moon orbiting Earth. We get a very funny scene. Uh, so, Vulcan, Scott's brother, has... Um, is it volcano powers? What the hell is his power, specifically? It's like some kind of heat manipulation, right? I proudly know next to nothing about this man, because he sucks. And the way that they write him here is that he sucks and it's a joke, which is about the best thing you can do with Falcon, because it's him arguing with Wolverine about miscooking the steak. This was my introduction to Vulcan, and I kind of love him because this is just hilarious. Wolverine wants his steak rare because he's fucking Wolverine. And uh, Vulcan loves overcooking things, apparently, and is giving him a medium-rare steak. Wolverine also is the one non-Summers family member who has a room and lives at this moon house. Oh, we'll be getting into that diagram in a minute. (laughs) That diagram is coming, and that diagram is one of my favorite things in this whole fucking issue. So we did we get... I don't think we actually... No, so far we had not had any of the... um, classic now classic and essential x-men elements the diagrams and graphs and the info pages that we get uh pretty regularly now in every single x-men book um but that was started in house of x powers of 10 and um they are they're not all designed by tom muller but he designed like the the sort of layout and set them up and it's some gorgeous design work and yeah we'll be digging into the ones here uh, meanwhile, we get some characterization for Kid Cable because he really wants to trade guns with one of the Corsairs and they're like 
talking about like the cool space guns and it's very like childish like he shouts to Jean Grey mom is it cool if I change trade guns with Raza like it's a fucking trading card or something uh, and then we have my favorite scene of the whole issue which is Hepzibah who for context is normally portrayed as Corsair so Scott's dad's girlfriend from space who is like a cat alien lady like she's kind of furry and has some stripes on her arms so effectively rachel and cable's step grandma more or less yeah like complicated timeline shenanigans aside this is this is their step grandmother and she goes up to rachel who oh, for additional context rachel is from an alternate future she is a full-grown woman who is probably only a couple years younger than her dad is supposed to be because marvel comics timeline is weird like she is in her 20s to be very clear yeah everyone they have these familial relationships but the age gaps are not what those relationships would generally imply it's just to be very clear because her step-grandmother comes up and hits on her (laughs) uh specifically she asks if all of her clothes have spikes on them or if it's just a special occasion for the spikes and rachel responds solely with yes at which point Hepzibah says, then another hard drink for another hard girl I am getting. Yeah, I love Summer's family weirdness. And this is maybe one of the weirdest Summer family weirdness moments ever. Um, And I also like when they let Rachel be kind of gay, which they have done here. So to be clear, these characters never see each other and there is no blood relation. So it's just it's weird pseudo incest but it's fun, honestly. She doesn't know her grandfather. Yeah. I, unless, I, is there stuff in the Brewbreaker space stuff? I haven't read that shit. So, so far as I'm concerned, she doesn't know her grandfather. It's fine. It's just cat lady grandma hitting on spiky lesbian granddaughter. And it's, it's just fun. It's X-Men. It's all kind of incestuous anyway. It's fine. <laughs> and specifically, I think... Because this is a sequence of literally four or five panels. And I think part of what makes it work is just the very slight changes across panels and expression and tilt. Where like three of them are very close to being the same panel of just like slightly changes and panning more or less. So you just get a zoom in on those little micro changes in expression between each line of the weird flirting. Uh, and Hepzibah very slowly drinking whatever her drink is, which Krakoa wine, space drink, who knows? It's definitely alcoholic. Sci-fi goop of some sort. <laughs> so Havoc shows up and they give uh, Corsair a present, which is a little gateway flower that they can put in their spaceship so that no matter where in the universe Corsair is, he can come and see like the rest of the family whenever. Which, having now read all of, like, the 80s stuff and the 70s stuff, and where, like, there's a degree of, like, sadness and frustration that Corsair keeps being in space, now that he knows his sons are alive, which he didn't when he was in space. Oh yeah, um, this is really sweet. This is, like, it's a very weird example of the great things Krakoa makes possible for the mutants, but, like, the gateways in this instance are just, like, a huge, like, deal and letting this family actually be together, like, consistently for the first time in their entire publication history, I would say. 
Yeah, and it's just like an extension of the sort of Krakoa hope philosophy stuff into not just a matter of state, but a matter of actual day-to-day living with the characters' relationships and actually being able to cross boundaries they otherwise couldn't. Um, and, and Vulcan gets to be, like, weird and overly enthusiastic about seeing his family. Again, I find Vulcan really funny in this, and I still have not read anything else with Vulcan aside from other Hickman-written Vulcan stuff. So, I like Vulcan by default, because these are good. Uh, and then we get to the info pages. So we have, um, there's a map of the house, which is just, like, uh, one's a level layout that tells us just, you know where they keep all of the X-Jets, where, like, the living room is compared to the bedrooms, and, like, sort of what it's going to look like from the outside when they cut to that later. Basically, like, of course Scott Summers' house also contains two fucking hangars and, like, a whole, like, X-Men prepared zone. Even though he has a gateway to Krakoa anyway and could get to one in seconds, he's got to have one at his house too. Uh, And then the more important diagram, which is the room layout diagram, uh, most of this is pretty innocent. We just have... It's it's 12 rooms. Sorry, 9 rooms. It's 9 rooms. Um, and we establish that there's each sort of section. So one section has the kids. Um, so Cable and Rachel have rooms. And there's an empty room there. Which is interesting. Because there's not been any hints about that room getting filled by someone. Uh, but who knows. Maybe that Ruby character. The, the one from the future who's like Scott and Emma's kid from the future i don't know i'm not sure who that is but i guess just for clarity's sake real quick there's like the rooms are sort of arranged on the outside of a circular floor plan where there's like a common living room in the middle and then all of the rooms are arranged in little quadrants of i was gonna say quadrants of free that's not how quadrants work and well there's four sections of free for the total 12 Like, one side is just, like, the kitchen, dining room stuff, and then the other three sections are rooms. There's the one you just said with the children. Then there's the one with the brothers of Vulcan and Havoc, and then an empty room there. The empty room is for Adam X the Extreme. Or Gambit, take your pick. Well, canonically now, it's it's Adam X the Extreme. They've done it. So, um, he needs to hurry up and move in, because I want to see him regularly in X-Men comics, because that's just hilarious. But then we have the most important three rooms. Uh, for Cyclops, Wolverine, and Jean. And they are all together on the same side. And as you can see very clearly in the diagram, each room is circular, and every single other room is a closed circle, uh, with a marking for the doors between the rooms. Except for these three rooms, where the wall where each circle touches the others has a little gap in it. And you can see very clearly that the three rooms are connected. There's not even any, like, doors in the diagram, because the doors are marked on the diagram as well. And there's no doors here. These are just, this is essentially one big room in three sections. And this, along with many other heavy, heavy editorial-denying hints, um, are indicators that Cyclops, Wolverine, and Jean have finally given up on their weird love triangle and instead just become a polytriad. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that isn't remotely confirmed in the sort of explicit statement sort of thing, but it's the very modernized version of Claremont tradition of showing everything you're allowed to 
just before you would get to the line of corporate saying no. Um, yeah, this is this is even better than that Claremont stuff um, because it, this is this is to the point when like when the writers get asked about it in interviews that they just sort of like clam up but nod like it's that level of confirmation where it's just it's happening. There's actually not that much more of it in these first four issues, but there's some of the later issues. There's this amazing one where um scott is convincing wolverine to come with the family to the beach and one of the things he uses to convince wolverine is that both he and Jean gray will be in skimpy bathing suits and there's a lot of stuff actually in wolverine's solo series about how like much more personal and intense his relationship with cyclops seems to have become in their portrayal in that but yeah it's honestly a delightful way of solving that love triangle <laughs> the using the diagram is just so much fun so we go back now to, like, regular comics pages, and um, Scott is doing the dishes using weird goo, and because Krakoa has insisted that they clean their dishes using weird Krakoa goo, apparently, which is, like, gross, but apparently less gross than the original plan, which was edible plates, so that is better. Um, and Corsair has, like, a moment where he's worried about scott and the mutants and his brothers and like the whole krakoa enterprise and the reaction it's going to get from the humans but scott sort of reassures his dad weirdly by basically saying that like well there's always people who want to kill all the mutants so this isn't any fucking different except now i get to be with my family and that he's gonna focus on the things that make him want to live then focus on the things that want to kill him um and they have like a good bonding moment uh again this is the issue that kind of sold me on cyclops as a character uh, when, like, Grant Morrison wrote a whole run where Cyclops is one of the major characters and I came away from it going, I mean, I really love Emma and Cyclops is okay, I guess. I like Morrison's Cyclops a lot, but I can definitely understand why, you know, that would be your takeaway. Because his whole thing is he's never been the flashy character. You know, he's... I think he has a disservice done... By the extremity to which the 90s cartoon and the movies make him a stick in the mud. He's so fucking boring in those, oh my god. Yeah, but it's sort of like, if it was a comedy duo between him and anyone else, it would be he is the straight man, he is the, on the surface, less immediately bombastic, but in good stories like this one, just has really nice moments where it reminds you, oh yeah, this is the guy who has been a paramilitary leader for an oppressed group since he was 16. And this is him, again, on a personal level, continuing the hope thing by essentially going, even though all this shit has changed with Krakoa and yada yada, in a lot of ways, nothing has changed. Everyone is still out to kill us, but I'm just going to be happy when I can. And it's just, you know... The, about the healthiest way he could possibly look at any part of his life and you can't even say he's naive because again he is still here yeah you only realize this when you've read like a lot of x-men but cyclops is like one of the best developed characters in x-men maybe the best developed character in x-men because he's gotten to be like I, he's consistently one of the major facets of the book and has been since the old days and they're just constantly doing sort of new things to try and make him more interesting which is weird because he's already interesting once you actually sit down and dig into him and it just continuously makes him more interesting i think and more complex um and then this issue ends with a little orcus tease uh where they're they're gonna make nimrod which is like a super sentinel basically 
um, and a big deal for this run of books, but not a big deal for this run of issues. So we're moving straight on into issue number two, which I said I like dad superheroes. This is the dad superhero issue of this run, I would say. It's essentially Cyclops and his kids going on a hunt on a mysterious wild island because we've already established everything with Krakoa, but one day a second mystery island just pops out of nowhere and is beginning to make its way towards Krakoa. The two islands are moving toward each other and Scott's mission is essentially to see what that's about and if it's going to be a problem. And he brings along Cable and Rachel for a father and kids excursion mission on the dangerous island with all of its dangerous plants and animals and then the summoner that we will get into. Yeah, this is this is Scott's idea of a family outing. <laughs> Let's go on a dangerous mission together, children, to an uncharted island that is mysteriously floating towards ours and has a volcano with tentacles coming out of it. <laughs> While also getting to humble brag about what a good pilot he is. Uh, well, of course. Uh, he is the best pilot in the X-Men. In the Marvel Universe, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I think at this point. Even though that that visor's got to be cutting off a lot of his vision. This man has no peripheral vision, and he's still the best pilot in the Marvel Universe. It's kind of impressive. Yeah. And as they're making their way through the island, they have a bit of a time clock where they're estimating only a certain number of hours before the two islands meet, and they want to hopefully figure out what's going on before then, just in case it's something bad. And... A lot of it is really more about the banter more than any specific plot stuff because it's just a lot of Scott being the dad to his children that are present with him in a way that they haven't usually gotten to be on panel and a relationship with Cable and Rachel that we have never had before where Rachel is older than Cable here because again it's teen Cable and not the old man and there's just a lot of her being like Dad, what do we do about this obnoxious smuck? Because <laughs> Kid Cable is fun, but he's also a dumbass. He's like a competent dumbass. Until suddenly he'll make a really stupid mistake and just be a dumbass. So it's just a lot of, like, tension between the siblings and Scott being like, now, now. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just fun. Back and forth banter. And, um, oh, the island's inhabited by monsters, which, special gift for you. Um, weird snake monster with, um... Have you seen Stranger Things? I have not. Okay, there's a monster in that that has a mouth just like this, where it's like like a flower and it folds open and it's got like four jaws kind of that are covered in teeth, like like this panel right here. Um, if if anyone wants to know what this monster kind of looks like in terms of its head, the rest of it's like a snake and it's like weird and smooth and silver. But if you want to figure out what its weird freaky head looks like while it's eating this rhino monster. Um, just look up the demo Gorgon from Stranger Things. It's that. So, you know, they all, like, fight some monsters. And then we cut to the Iraq Maw, which is, I mentioned the volcano with the tentacles coming out of it. This is that. It's a part of this island that, like, leads to, as we learn later, the other sentient mutant island. But, um, basically, uh, this is where we meet the summoner, who, uh, is talking to a mysterious person through, like, a floaty communications thing, I guess. Um, who refers to his mother. So he's talking to his mother, 
who seems to have a head that's made of fire. That's about all we can see of her. About trying to find someone who's going to be able to um, help them uh, because they live somewhere where they only know war. And now someone is going to have to um, figure out how to, like, navigate a place where there's peace, which is just not something he's going to know how to do because, again, he has lived his entire life, like, surrounded by war and destruction. This is, this is, it's set up for Ten of Swords, really, this stuff. It's, it's, Ten of Swords is amazing. This stuff isn't really that vital right now, so we'll just kind of go through it quickly. Um, but we get some more, uh, wonderful infographics in this case, uh, making it clear to us that this summoner is a high summoner, which is an, a special category of summoner, and he's the only one of them right now when there's supposed to be three. Like, it's establishing that this society is very, like, the society the summoner comes from is very different from one that we know, and that they have clearly, when they normally have three, but they only have one of this top position, there's clearly a lot of, like, they're in trouble. It's a very, like, war-torn, and all of the ranks have been dwindled significantly. Yeah. And it's just sort of emphasizing how dangerous this new character is, but also how the society he's coming from is sort of in decline, at least in terms of population. Yeah, and how dangerous their enemies are as well. Again, if, you, if you're reading this all the way through and reading through to um, where Ten of Swords happens and all that, this would be really excellent setup for that. Right now we have some more sibling bickery. Um, apparently during the uh, battle, Cable decided to bite a giant demon squid thing they fought. And they come across the summoner. Of course, the kids are bickering too much to actually notice he's there, but Cyclops does. And if you hear more noises in the background, it's still my cats. Uh, summoner and the mutants do not speak the same language. And so they're trying to figure out how to communicate when Cable decides to give Summoner a present, hoping that he'll understand what the present is. And that present is, for some insane fucking reason, a grenade. That the summoner just goes shiny and then presses a button on, causing <laughs> an explosion. And then from the way Cable talks afterward, this was actually a mistake that he somehow did not foresee would go the way it goes. So validating spiky lesbian Rachel's frustrations of just two issues in a row of making Rachel one of the coolest characters in the book and going, Cable's a dumbass. Uh, so someone is really pissed off and also completely unharmed. Uh, at which point he summons a bunch of cool monsters, um, there's like a, there's, it's more, is it crab? There we go, we've got a crab. We talked in our very first episode about wishing to see some crabs on Krakoa, and I think this thing kind of qualifies as a crab. What do you think? That one. Not the octopus. Short answer, yes. It's much more of like an alienified crab. Or, like, the coloration's different, the parts aren't all, like... In giant size, there's more or less just, like, take a real crab, but expand it. Like, make it huge. Versus this is, like, a cool crab monster thing. And it's cool, but I also want to see more crab crabs. But it's better than no crabs. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. This is, this is like, a super nightmare crab. With, like, a mouth with, like, weird teeth. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Cable's pissed that he wasted his thermal grenade when he could be using it on the monsters. Um, but then Scott realizes the really obvious solution to this fucking problem, which is... So, the mutants have come up with a new language called Krakoan, which they all learn how to speak by getting it telepathically downloaded into their minds when they first arrive on Krakoa. 
And so he just has Rachel, who is a telepath, who has been helping people telepathically learn Krakoan, just telepathically teach Krakoan to the summoner so that they can speak and figure this situation out. At which point, there's just sort of a slow diffusion of tension, and Scott just explains that he's coming to see what's going on with the island and if it's a problem. At which point, Summoner asks Scott if he loves someone. At which point, in different wards, Scott says, Complicated question. According to corporate, I love one someone. And the summoner goes, so you want to be with them, yes? And Scott goes, of course. According to corporate, that's just Gene. And the summoner explains, well, the islands are here to fuck. And so we get these panels of the islands. Enough times pass that they're actually meeting. Uh, we see the vines extending across the mass of the dirt and everything to wrap each other up in little vegetative embraces and everyone's just like are they doing what we think they're doing and others just going don't want to know flowers bloom yeah suggestively yeah so just scott covers cable's eyes (laughs) yeah and the islands are essentially coming together summoner is just going to live here now on the Iraq Maw side of the island, which it's like now fused with Kakoa, but still like distinct geographically. And Summoner says something nonspecific of, I live here because he lives here. And we zoom in the end to, after a brief little diagram just showing how the islands emerged, we get later that night a Summoner having been waiting for someone to arrive and the person he has been speaking about is apocalypse and there's just a lot of foreboding about arako which i think this issue is the first time we see that name stated explicitly and just there's some sort of relation going on between apocalypse summoner arako and yeah it's just a bunch of not fully explicit what's happening but just something's brewing uh well specifically we find out that the summoner is apocalypse's uh grandson and that summoner's mother is named war which i think is the first time it's officially confirmed that the original horsemen of apocalypse were actually his kids um they all become major characters as of ten of swords which uh, is amazing. Go read it. Read all this first, though, because you need to understand this stuff to go into that and read it. It's all good. Just read this shit. And with that, issue two ends. And now we have issue three. Issue three is relatively simpler, where the Krakoan gates that we've mentioned throughout that mutants use for transportation are supposed to only allow people with an X gene through, so mutants. But a group of human scientists slash bioterrorists managed to hijack it and infiltrate the Savage Land, where Krakoans are growing the flowers that they use for their medicines and inventions there. And yeah, this group hijacks the gates. It's humans trying to get info on the mystery mutant medicines and all of the information that Krakoa sort of holds tight to its chest. And so... X-Men get tasked with having to investigate what's going on, and the long and short of it is that there is a group of four octogenarians of senior citizen biologists, specifically primarily botanists, who are eco-terrorists, and 
hate what humanity has been doing to the planet, but also hate the way that Krakoa is putting a wrench in their plans and they're trying to steal information from Krakoa to better adjust their own plans accordingly. And it's just a bunch of foul-mouthed old women. Horticulture, uh, which is the name of the group, are pretty fucking hilarious. Horticulture, also spelled horde culture. Um, instead of horticulture, which is like the pun. Like, there's this amazing bit where they're explaining to Cyclops, like, their whole deal, and they explain that they they all disagree on the end goal. Like, some of them just want to wipe out all of humanity. Some of them want to wipe out most of humanity and leave it to the children, and some of them can't decide. Um, like, it's just this bickering group of old ladies who have enough, like, knowledge of plants to be able to hijack aspects of Krakoa and use it against the mutants. It's, like, a really cool threat for the X-Men now that they are, um, so dependent on Krakoa and stuff to, like, introduce this new wrinkle. Uh, that's mostly what this issue is for. Uh, there is an amazing scene where Sebastian Shaw tries to use, like, his... Well, Sebastian Shaw is the leader of the Hellfire Club, and he sucks. He's terrible and the worst. But because the mutants have amnesty now for all of the old mutant criminals, he's on the governing body of the Quiet Council. And he tries to, like, charm the ladies. Um, and then also is like, hey, uh, you can steal stuff, that's fine. Let's just make a deal about it, because I am an awful capitalist asshole who does this sort of thing all the time. At which point they, uh, spray him with, like, a slime that means he can't use his mutant powers and then kick the shit out of him and it is delightful yeah their main weapon of choice since they knew they'd be attacking krakowans is a power dampening goop just they're spraying everyone with the green nickelodeon sludge but it also works as a power dampener and again they kick the shit out of sebastian shaw which is just so overdue and wonderful to see every time it happens it is overdue and it, it, it happens a fair bit right now. It's still overdue every time it happens. Every issue, Sebastian Shaw should get the kick to, shit kicked out of him. Yeah, it's very much his role is... Here is the absolutely heinous example of a mutant ingratiating himself into human business society of all the evil that entails. And here we have him working on the governing body and... What does that say philosophically about what Krakoa is willing to do? Yada, yada, yada. But also, everyone hates him and he gets the shit beat out of him a lot. If you remember two episodes ago, we mentioned at the end of Days of Future Past the formation of Operation Wide Awake, uh, the Sentinel Building Program, and Sebastian Shaw was there and was a part of that. He's in that issue, doing that. And he is a mutant. Fuck Sebastian Shaw. Love watching him get the shit kicked out of him. Um, but yeah, he is one of the main characters alongside, I would say, Mr. Sinister, and to a lesser extent, Apocalypse, weirdly, where you're supposed to question the whole um, mutant amnesty program that Krakoa has, uh, which for most other characters, I'd say is fine. Like, giving Blob and Pyro and Avalanche amnesty and Magneto amnesty is perfectly reasonable. Um, it's just like a couple of these guys who are like these very real world assholes. And in many cases, they don't have, like, the the ideological background of some of the other X-Men villains who are now just living with the X-Men. Well, it's very much like a lot of the Brotherhood are just, like, generic endangerment evil, whereas ones like Sebastian Shaw are so thoroughly rooted in non- 
super-powered evil, where it's just, like, the type of economic societal evil of rich people and just fucking people over economically. And with the Hellfire Club, there's also a certain seed of just, like, misogyny and sexual violence that isn't really gotten into, but there's just an utter feeling of he is a scumbag. Yeah, but Scott feels obligated to step in, even though he enjoys watching uh, Shaw get the shit kicked out of him because Shaw's technically kind of his boss these days. Um, and so he takes them all down with his eye blasts, uh, and one of them is on the floor going, oh god, my hip, you broke my hip. And so Scott comes in to help her, at which point she sprays him in the face with the goo, and they start kicking the crap out of him. At which point Emma essentially asks what these people are after, and they do their whole long spiel about just how essentially what we said of they are botanists who hate what humanity is doing with the earth and they haven't fully figured out what they're going to do but they're working on engineering to take control over just human agriculture and its implications and now because of all Krakoa's doing they need to steal these flowers and they make their way right back out of the gate the X-Men have not been able to stop them, and they have not yet been able to figure out how they infiltrated in the first place. Four literal ladies outmaneuver two members of the X-Men, of the mutants' governing body, and one of the, like, the leader of their entire military, essentially. Absolutely hilarious. Uh, for, quickly, last word on this issue, for an example of how these ladies talk, while they're beating up Cyclops... Uh, one of them shouts, Stupid boy, we do water aerobics and yoga four days a week at the YMCA. Our instructor's name is Seven, and he's from Sweden, and in better shape than you are. There's just a lot of banter that's really playing up the old lady jokes, and it works. Yeah. They're really fun. Um, they show up again later. They show up more. I want them to show up as often as possible, because they're delightfully awful. The one from Marvel Unlimited is they, for some reason, have decided, yes, you want to start reading this on the last page because you've read it before. You can leave that one in in the edit, by the way. A official complaint to Marvel Unlimited. When I when I have read an issue to the last page and I open it again, it's because I want to start reading it again from the fucking beginning. Technical issues aside, we are moving on to X-Men number four, which is one of the best single issues of X-Men comics of all time, as far as I'm concerned. It's definitely top 10, probably top 5. Yeah, like, all of the X-Men stories that we've discussed on this podcast have been good ones, but in terms of just single floppy issues, there are very few that compare to this. And conceptually, it's just a global economic forum where annually representatives of different nations across the earth meet up and discuss things but this is the first one post Krakoa unveiling itself and the whole big thing is discussion of the implications of Krakoan technology science etc for all of the earth including the issue of human fears of if Krakoa is going to become a dominating force and if so what that would mean and essentially, in terms of the actual people at the summit, we have Professor X, Magneto, and Apocalypse. They are free members of the governing Quiet Council of Krakoa, so they are as high of chiefs of state as Krakoa has. 
and they have two bodyguards with them, specifically Cyclops and Gorgon, who are two of the aforementioned war captains. Gorgon is, um, he's got a katana, and he used to be Hydra, which, the Hy- Hydra are Nazis, so, um, this is more of that uh, amnesty policy in action. He does seem to have given up on that ideology at this point, but, like, yeah, like, there's supposed to be a degree of, like, complication when you read this. Um, I do want to mention one of the most delightful details, which is they've all shown up, you know, in a suit and tie, including Apocalypse, who is an eight-foot-tall, giant gray man with blue lips who we normally see wearing a big robot suit. Apocalypse, who is gigantically tall and gigantically wide, specifically, like, in a built way, but just a giant man in every way. This is... Is it an exaggeration even to be like, this bitch is bigger than like Sauron with his wingspan out? Because Apocalypse is huge. This bitch is huge. And here he is clearly unhappily shoved into a suit and tie. (laughs) I think Sauron's wingspan's probably a little wider than Apocalypse. But like, Apocalypse is... He's on scale of the Hulk, I would say. Yeah, I think that's probably a good comparison. He's probably about as big as the Hulk. Yeah, like, certainly, like, Avengers movie Hulk. Like, the current one where he's a little bit smaller than he has been in other stuff. Yeah, I'd say he's, like, on that level of physicality. This is not Jason Isaacs standing around being weirdly shorter than everyone else in the room while, like, painted to look like Ivan Ooze. Jason, do you mean Oscar Isaacs? Oscar Isaacs, Jesus Christ. Is there a Jason Isaacs? I don't know who that is. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he's, um, most people know him as Malfoy in Harry Potter, the the dad Malfoy. Oh, the um, hideous man with his hateful hair. Yes, yes. Uh, that is not Jason Isaacs' real hair. Good actor. Okay, this is an Oscar Isaacs <laughs> in a terrible blue makeup. Um, standing around being weirdly shorter than everyone else, even though he's playing fucking Apocalypse, and they should have mo-capped it. Anyway, so they show up to this conference and are welcomed. Yeah, there's a negotiation, uh, because they're not allowed to actually have weapons, and Gorgon, of course, has his sword. But, um, Cyclops steps in and is like, uh, uh, well, you're not gonna be able to get him to get rid of his sword, so you're just gonna have to let us in with it. And then everyone is introduced to the the dinner that they're going to before, like, the conference proper. But it's pretty clear that the dinner is where decisions are actually made. Because this is all, like, rich elite people shit. Yeah, and they specifically... Only the heads of states are in the meeting while their, like, bodyguards have to wait outside. And this is a head of state meeting with only ten people in attendance. Three of them being... Xavier Magneto Apocalypse. So it's them and then seven representatives from humanity, specifically from China, the US, Brazil, Italy, Switzerland, India, and then Wakanda. Uh, Wakanda is the only, besides the Krakoans, the only one of the actual like Marvel fictional countries represented. Otherwise, it's a fairly expected list of like major human superpowers. Uh, yeah, Wakanda's where Black Panther's from, so if you've seen that, that's just in case. Who knows? Yeah, we have we have another wonderful infographic. I, I love these so much. This specifically being the dinner menu, which sounds incredibly fancy. Yeah, this is this is the posh dinner scene. It sounds incredibly fancy, but also not necessarily all that good. 
we have watermelon gazpacho infused with habanero and poblano chilies. Sweet and spicy can be really good, though. Where you lose me is when we get the shredded kale, mushrooms, bacon, parmesan. That one's weirdly unfancy, though. Like, that's the weird one out. Everything else is kind of fancy, and that's just, like, kale. Then we get olive wagyu, uh, parentheses, Kagawa Prefecture style with Colbert sauce. That's an insanely delicious steak. I can tell you that Wagyu is amazing. Okay, that part's good. Magneto is right. And then we get Brioche Tresse de Metz, which I probably didn't pronounce any part of that correctly, and I don't know what it is. Is that French? I'm gonna assume it's French. Brioche Tresse de Metz. I don't know. I've not had that one. I've had Wagyu once, so... I, I know that the Wagyu is good, uh, if it's cooked well anyway. I don't know what the fuck that is. So, Charles and Eric are greeted very normally, and then um, they look over to Apocalypse. They're like, we, basically the guy's like, should I call you Mr. Ensaba or Mr. Nur, perhaps? Because um, Apocalypse's real name is Ensaba Nur, um, and he simply says, I am Apocalypse. My other names are not fit for you to utter. The real thing with Apocalypse here is, like... This guy comes up to Apocalypse's tit. Yeah, because, like, the size is, like, an emphasis of all of this. But the real thing is, like, you have Professor Xavier, who's always been the sort of human, mutant, coexistence, whatever. Then you have Magneto, who for large periods of his history has been decidedly a supervillain. And, like, the whole thing with the X-Men is that human society hates them. So they would hate Charles, but they would really hate Magneto because he's a supervillain who has made no qualms about hating humanity. But then you have Apocalypse, who makes Magneto seem normal and non-threatening by comparison. Because, like, Magneto is, like, supervillain. Apocalypse is supervillain quadrupled, where it is, again, this eight-foot-tall man who clearly doesn't give a shit about any of what the humans are saying because he's above them and he's correct he is literally physically above them and also apocalypse is thousands of years old literally everyone else is a child he does not give a shit and just like magneto you could picture is like oh this is a super villain and they would hate him Apocalypse is an immediately visually recognizable, not even remotely human-looking comic book supervillain here at this economic forum of political economic figures. Yeah, to add to the weirdness, um, this is the time, like, in the current era, Charles is walking, um, because as soon as that man is able to find a way of walking, he starts walking. Um, and he is constantly wearing this Cerebro helmet on his head. So, um, Charles is in a normal business suit, but then he is wearing a weird mutant helmet. So, Eric is the most normal-looking person who has shown up, because Gorgon is another, like, visible mutant. Cyclops has his glasses on all the time. Charles has his weird helmet, and Apocalypse is an eight-foot-tall gray man. So just the, the, the fact that, like, out of all of them, like, politically the most extreme would be Eric, but he is the only one who is, like, in this sort of scene, just a normal-looking person. Like, of the characters, he's the only one where you could draw a character that looks like him and be like, oh, that could be one of the human heads of state. Because he just looks like a relatively old man, just in a suit. And in this week, another installment of 
this presumably straight artist is a little fruity, because Lionel Francis Yu also knows how to draw a beautiful old specifically old man in this case. Magneto is a silver fox, incredibly sexy, however the old level of person you have to be to have literally lived through the Holocaust. Magneto is pushing a hundred, and he looks damn good. I think he's over a hundred by now. He... Bitch looks good. Yeah. He he is the handsome senior citizen, like, older than Ian McKellen, and looks 40 years younger, but also is clearly old and some paradoxical shit. He's been de-aged a bunch. There was, he spent, like, a whole year as a baby. He's been de-aged, but then always immediately ages up to still look old, just not dead. He's always in this weird balance. But yeah, so they, they all make a toast to peace, um, presumably because peace means profit for these people. It becomes very clear that they kind of all suck, I think, over the course of the dinner conversation. I mean, again, this is very much like very rich people backroom dealing, deciding the fate of the entire planet. Like, this isn't the mutants rocking up to the UN. That's, that's so unimportant that we don't even bother seeing it. The mutants rolling up to the economic forum is the thing that's worth an issue. And it's not even so much like peace means profit so much as peace for our profits. Because the whole thing is, you've all really thrown a wrench in the way everything works. And what if you all decide you're done with human society? And a lot of it is very, is there going to be war of some kind, whether economic or literal war? And like, what if you decide that you as mutant kind want the entire planet's? And a lot of it essentially is just, largely Magneto, but the three of them, essentially flaunting, we are better than you in every single way, and we are doing things better than you, but even if we acted immorally, we would be doing it by learning from you, who we are in the room with right now. And if we need to, we will do you far better than you ever have. And also in the middle of this whole thing, there's fully been a plan to assassinate them with fucking armed squads on the lower and upper floors that Cyclops and Gorgon dispatch while the council members are fully just eating their steak and dissing the humans. Yeah, um, so obligatory action scene is um, Scott and Gorgon stopping a bunch of guys hired by... um, I think it winds up being... It's not the U.S. ambassador. I think it's, like, the Italian one or something. It's one of the white ones. I can't match them with the countries after that. At one point, we have one of the humans asks, how can we trust you to be part of the world if you spend your time hiding from us on your island? Because they're talking about how humans generally aren't allowed on Krakoa outside of specific circumstances so it's a very closed border policy and apocalypse speaks the least of the free mutants he's mostly there just as an imposing physical presence but occasionally he'll just mutter a line that's essentially just essentially just calling everyone stupid because one of the only times he speaks is just him going does this feel like we're hiding he comes in with just like the biggest and best put downs so that's one of my favorite exchanges, and then we get um, the humans. So the the way Krakoa has like set itself up is they produce these miracle drugs that like the island is able to produce 
to like increase human lifespan and cure a bunch of diseases and that's how they've managed to get themselves like officially recognized by most nations as part of trade deals um and setting up krokoa's big economic advantage um and so some of these ambassadors are like questioning whether like the weekly regimens on the drugs are really necessary and i think it's pretty clear that they're not but that the mutants have said that they are because that is the thing that is going to give them the advantage is if people still need to keep receiving these drugs and like again this is a case of like oh we've learned this uh by watching you and we get just there's just a lot of really good specific lines throughout one is magneto doing a quote armaments universal debts and planned obsolescence are these not the free pillars of western prosperity and then two of the humans go that's huxley right and then the other it's not just huxley he's quoting the island which again obviously island krakoa this is like a verbal battle between all parties involved and the mutants are absolutely annihilating the humans at every single turn of phrase it's very much just we are here not to ask for your validation but to just establish the fact that we do not need to ask for it um there's there's a little exchange here that i think i'm just going to read the whole thing because it's just so fucking good um so this is magneto speaking initially do you know how medieval societies got led? They had to mine it from Roman ruins because the technology, the knowledge of how to do it was lost during the Dark Ages. This wasn't an aberration. You humans, through war, short-sightedness, or pure ignorance, tend to destroy yourselves every few thousand years. Look at the end of the Bronze Age, a Dark Age before the Dark Ages. You don't even know what caused the end of it, but there it is. Yet another hole in the collective memory of man. Um, and then... It's specifically the ambassador who's ordered the assassins who... Is he the Italian one or is he the American one? Or is he... I'm not sure. I uh, can't remember. I, yeah, like, the, the ones that stand out are obviously, like, there's a bunch of, like, white guys in suits. And then there is the Wakandan ambassador, the Chinese ambassador, and the Indian ambassador, who are all, like, distinct because they aren't white people in suits. Yeah, they aren't just the most stereotypical evil governmental white man in a room that's half stereotypical evil governmental white men. And they don't really say their names, so it is genuinely kind of hard to tell which other countries are here. If this was, like, an animation or whatever, we'd probably get some fun, hilarious accents, but we don't get the accents in comics these days, sadly. We don't get the Claremont use of apostrophes and just written out trying to indicate nationality yeah yeah um uh, but this guy says who cares what caused the end of the bronze age and this is one of the couple and my favorite time when apocalypse pipes up i was alive then and you should care is that so then what tell us what caused the collapse me i fucking love apocalypse apocalypse is never at least in the comics has never been better than he is in this period through the end of ten of swords the the big blue dad period of apocalypse yeah um and then we get of course magneto comes in and gets the absolute best like mini monologue of the entire issue so the ambassador's like this is going to wind up leading to war and magneto says there will be no war Surely you can see that our methods are changing, that they have changed. Take me, for example. In the past, I would have seized your country's weapons of war and turned them on you. I would have tried to show you how strong I was, how strong I am. 
but we have learned. We have you have shown us the way of your quiet weapons of finance and your silent wars of influence. I've seen what you do here. Leverage people with debt. Make them pay to be healthy and whole. Make them pay to be educated. Make them pay you interest so they can have a place to live. Then, when you own them, you control them. I have seen what you do, and now we will do the same, but better. Better visions of better life, better drugs for a longer, healthier existence. And then we will take the money, the outrageous sums of money you will give us because it also means more wealth for you, and we will invest it. We will buy your banks, we will buy your schools, we will buy your media, we will buy your politicians. And then when we've bought all the West, we will buy you because you've taught us that everything has a price and we are happy to pay. Then when we have this influence, we will use it. We will make sure that the wrong sort of people, and you know who, no longer have any economic power. We will not allow them inside our institutions because it's important they do not have anywhere to peddle their dangerous, outdated ideas. And that is how it will end, like a fire with no oxygen. Yes, of course, there will still be people who fear and hate us. They just simply won't be able to do anything about it any longer. So as I said, there will be no war. Oh, and by the way, this was really fantastic. He's holding up a piece of the steak. My compliments to the chef. It's so fucking good. <laughs> yeah, like... The just complete and utter blunt-like discussion of essentially economic warfare sort of shit. And I think the most interesting part to me is the mention of just like, and for the worst, they will have no room within our institutions, which on its face is a very good strong declaration of like, if you took it to a real world allegory sort of thing it would be like oh yes there's no room for nazis and they must be stamped out at every opportunity and they cannot be allowed an inch and so there's that sort of level of things but there, there's then also the tension of well mr sinister is on the quiet council you know so there's still the issue of all of krakoa's own internal things but all of ju just coming to mind all of the issues inherent with the entire krakoa concept and it's just very well written yeah i mean this there's a reason i read all that a lot this is like the centerpiece of the issue and uh, by the way so the way this is laid out is we've got some nine panel grids um and most of the speeches every other panel is magneto speaking while eating and every other panel is him slowly cutting the steak up as he's eating it and he's just digging into it he really likes this fucking steak i would like some steak <laughs> I would like some steak, and I would like some of the man who is eating the steak. Is this the hottest Magneto scene? Not drawn by Joe Mad? It's up there. Probably. <laughs> it's probably the hottest 2D Magneto. They have also done a good job in the castings of Magneto. But after this speech, the entire forum is just silent and agape for a panel. Before we cut to Cyclops and Gorgon having just mowed everyone down... Gor uh, everyone meaning the would-be assassins of the human squads. Gorgon has a little moment sort of reiterating a version of what Magneto said of, There are new methods. Once upon a time, you would have been dead. Take this mercy and never test me again. There is blood all over the floor, by the way. These people are not dead because the mutants have a rule against killing any humans, but they are very maimed. Yeah, they are not let off easy. And then there's just a little bit of wrap-up where Magneto's essentially taunting 
the representative who had had the assassin teams because he's just like, I see you keep touching your ear. Everything all right? And then just sort of loudly states for the entire room just the would-be assassination plot that they have already had foiled. And then there's just a little bit more wrap-up between Eric and Charles finishing things out. Charles doing his little, I still believe in all of you and in the potential for coexistence. But then Magneto being the other side of it of, try us again if you will, but if you do, expect a response. Of just this power play between the constant, we are not here to annihilate you, but do not fucking try us. And then they leave. It's, this is, yeah. I think pretty firmly this is this is top five ever, like, single issues of X-Men. Um, this is up there with, like, the silent issue with um, Jean and Emma going into Charles's head. This is up there with those, like, classic Claremont burn issues that always get put up there, like Phoenix dying on the moon or the start of uh, Days of Future Past. Oh, God, there's another amazing Magneto line. It wasn't us, they say. It was them, the bad humans, they always say. Yet here they come to kill us all, Charles, and all we've done to earn it is promise not to kill them. We even made it a law. Even though there technically is some mandated action panels via Cyclops and Gorgon, the battle is really the battle of words here, and it's all the more enjoyable for it. And, like, even when we get those panels, it's still overlaid with the conference. Like, the, the, the actual physical fight that's happening is just, like, a visualization of the like ideological and um economic battle that is happening in the forum i like the way it's laid out and the mutants and the humans striking back and forth yeah this is uh uh, we have not talked that much about art because we've kind of had a lot to talk about generally and we've been rushing through it a bit in some cases but this is an issue made 90 percent of talking heads and it's fucking stunning. Like, this is some of... Uh, Lionel Francis Yu is an amazing artist, and I think this is my favorite issue that he's ever done. Yeah, in this issue specifically, there's just great character expression, great little bits of body expression, too, even if it's just the sort of tiny details that you can get when they're all sitting at a table. But just great visual characterization, great range of emotion and subtlety. Great job leading the eye around in terms of page composition and angling of aspects of images into other images across the rest of the issues too, just in terms of things to acknowledge art-wise, just like you does a good job of just like all the scenic backgrounds of Krakoa and just selling both the like sci-fi landscapes and scope of things and then also more closed-in events here. Like we've said, just it takes place seated, seated around. It takes place seated around a table in this one room, and yet it all still feels dynamic and easy to follow and exciting to follow. And also, Magneto is hot. Oh, and and this is also an incredible use of the nine panel grid um, throughout issue four. Uh, it's it's very much it's like Watchmen. It's structured the same way with the very strict nine panel grid. Um, where just sometimes some of the panels would get combined, but, like, there's no page that has, like, less than three panels. Most of them are full nine, and it's just, like, the execution of that particular um, method is just, like, really fucking well done. Uh, Really well and strictly paced and laid out. It's fantastic. Yeah. 
it's really well done all around and I think is a high point for us to be ending on with our Krakoa X-Men coverage today. Uh, yeah. So, um, do you want to introduce next week's? Yeah, so this was our final week of the X-Men month for June. So we're now going to be back to standard, less structured picks where really just whatever the fuck we feel like talking about every week. And we're going to be going from X-Men to Shakespeare next week as we are going to be reading volume one of Aya Kano's manga Requiem of the Rose King. I think by the time the episode goes up, it will have been about a week since the anime adaptation uh, wrapped up, so didn't quite get it out while it was still on the air, but it should still be relatively fresh in some people's minds. And it's essentially historical drama, specifically entired by two Shakespeare plays, Richard III and Henry VI. And it's cool. It's just fucking cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With that said, thank you for listening and see you next week. Bye, everyone. Chris, Chris, Eric, 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 Eric,